Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Julie Wise, Associate Professor of History at the University of Oregon. She is the author of Corazon de Dixie, Mexicanos in the U.S. South Since 1910, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Julie Wise, welcome to Working History. Thank you. Good to be here. So your book looks at the long history of Mexican immigration to the U.S. South. And your focus is not on the Southwest, which I think is is more common in the historiography, but rather in the Deep South. Louisiana, uh, New Orleans in, uh, in particular, Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia, and North Carolina. So why don't you start us off by talking a little bit about um, why you think the story hasn't been told before? I think the story has not been told before due to both a lack of imagination, in a sense, and a lack of sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way that I started to think about this was in the 2000 census, when the uh, boom in Latino migration to the South was pretty much the biggest story out of the 2000 census. That was when I first got interested and started to wonder, I wonder how far back this goes. However, what I also realized was that, so I think that that was what enabled me to ask this question and Mm -hmm. to sort of think of Mexican immigration as something that was a part of the South as much as it was a part of a place like California where I had grown up. Um, But then once I started down the research track, I realized that the other reason the story had not been told was that the the best sources were in Mexico. Okay. So because these uh, migrants were uh, largely invisible for most of the century to U.S. actors, um, there was evidence of them in U.S. sources, but it was there was no, with one exception actually, there was no archive in the South that had anything under M for Mexican. Mm-hmm. You had to know where they were, what they were doing, what industries they were in, what mm-hmm. who the employers were. You had to know a lot in order to find info on them in the South. Conversely, in Mexico, I went, this is how the project began. I went to Mexico. I went straight to the files of New Orleans Consulate, what had been the main consulate for the South for most of the century, and just started looking through their records. And whoa, there were all these Mexican immigrants in mm-hmm. the rural South in the early 20th century that nobody had written about. Um, and then I think a third piece is that um, some of the communities, particularly the community in the Mississippi Delta, uh, was very eager and finally was able to assimilate onto the white side and did things like uh, change the pronunciation of last names, uh, did uh, most of them, not all, but most did whatever they could to distance themselves from their Mexican heritage, such mm-hmm. that uh, I was just in the Delta giving a talk Uh, people in the audience, including the children of more recent Latino immigrants, had no idea that there had been in these very same places uh, significant Mexican migrant communities in the early 20th century, even though many of the descendants of those migrants are still a part of the community today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in, in a lot of ways, it sort of took almost a transnational focus to get this story of the South. Is that sort of Correct. what I'm hearing? Okay, right. Exactly. Okay, so um, can you talk a little bit about how um, Mexican-American history then is different in the South versus elsewhere? And also in the same vein, how is it similar? Sure. Um, I think if we think about a location like Texas as being both the South and the Southwest, mm-hmm. I think that provides um, a useful starting point. But what I think is different about the areas that I study is that the areas that I study had been 
previously conceived of both as a reflection of reality and then took on a life of its own, this idea of the region being black and white. Mm -hmm. And so when Mexicans arrived in a place like Mississippi, they were entering a different but not entirely dissimilar uh, agricultural system, such as cotton picking, let's say, as what existed in Texas at the time. Um, they were facing uh, similar forms of discrimination that they faced in Texas. So thinking about Texas Jim Crow as having been really a three-way system, white, black, Mexican. Um, when Mexican migrants first uh, started being recruited to Mississippi, they experienced something similar. However, the difference was that Mexicans in Mississippi and other parts of the Deep South uh, were smaller in number and were more heavily reliant on the Mexican consul. And frankly, the white power structures were less invested in their oppression um, than they were in the oppression of African-Americans and in keeping African-Americans as a, uh, a, a ready and available labor force in large part by uh, forcing them to stay there through violence and by closing off other opportunities by making educational systems essentially not serve African-Americans. And so as a result, in the South, Mexicanos, they were sometimes, uh, in the case of New Orleans, they were very quickly able to be on the white side. In the case of Mississippi and Arkansas, they had to fight for that. Mm -hmm. But they were able to achieve it rather quickly in the South, in a way that in the Southwest, they were not able to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's delve a little bit more into the the meat of your book. Um, start us off in 1910, if you would. And broadly speaking, what was motivating Mexicanos to emigrate to the U.S. South? What was happening on both sides of the border at this point? So the Mexican Revolution um, is what we think of as the major precipitating event that kicked off the wave of Mexican migration that really lasted until the very recent economic crisis. And, and now is more or less down at, at zero in terms of net migration from Mexico to the United States. Mm -hmm. And so um, the Mexican Revolution also motivated migrants to the South in some cases similarly and in some cases differently from migrants to other parts of the country. So Mexicans that were living in the Gulf Coast of Mexico were did not experience the worst violence of the revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet, nonetheless, many did move to New Orleans uh, on ships. And so many were more middle class than their counterparts elsewhere in Mexico that fled across the physical border, primarily through Texas, and then went on from there to places mm -hmm. like California. So you had a more middle class community. You had conservative Mexican refugees from the revolution everywhere in the Southwest, um, but probably a larger share of conservatives went to New Orleans mm -hmm. um, because uh, that's just who was was living in that part of the country and had the means to to move to the United States via ship. So in that sense, the idea of the middle class from either side of the political spectrum, the middle class revolutionary uh, exile, if you will, um, was present in New Orleans as it was in, in places like San Antonio and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, but again, somewhat different because the direct physical violence impacted that region somewhat less and because it took more means to travel via, um, via ship. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the agricultural workers that went to Mississippi, they were all a part of um, really this pool of, of mostly Mexican, a few Mexican-American. My sample shows about one-sixth Mexican-American, and I think that would roughly be reflected uh, in the larger 
pool of Mexican and Mexican-American workers living in South Texas, particularly during the 1920s. So these are people that either uh, have fled the violence of the revolution or more likely after World War one caused an uptick in labor recruitment from Mexico to the United States that sort of combined with this, uh, the economic uh, consequences of revolution to pull many people out of the United States and to work sites in the United States, uh, excuse me, out of Mexico to work sites in the United States. And the way that this worked is that people would go to South Texas, establish somewhat of a provisional residence there, and recruiters would come from all over the country, from California from Alaska, from Minnesota, uh, from Michigan, uh, really from Pennsylvania, places that we don't, Chicago, places that we don't associate as much with Mexican immigration in the second half of the 20th century. In the interwar period, there were really Mexicans being recruited almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that sort of came to an end with the Depression, and many of those regions did not become hotspots again until the past few decades. So Mississippi is in that category in the sense that there were all of these workers in South Texas. Recruiters are coming from all over the country to recruit them. And so, too, did Mississippi cotton farmers send their recruiters to South Texas to recruit workers. And so in that sense, the, the group that goes to Mississippi, um, I wouldn't expect to, and nor do my research shows, that they were much different in terms of their characteristics uh, from those who went to go pick apples in Michigan or mm -hmm. uh, cotton in California or work on you know, a, a mining uh, site in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And what were the migrants' expectations when when they came to the United States? And what did they find when they got here? Um, I think it's it's very interesting that you're talking in some ways about two groups. You have this middle class group that's moving to places like New Orleans, and then you have a more agricultural working class that's really going everywhere um, where mm -hmm. where labor is needed. So so you know what was happening? What were the expectations? Was it simply seeking jobs? Was it security? Was it a mix of both? And then what sorts of things were, were these two groups um, doing when, or, or what sorts of work did they ultimately end up doing when they got here? I love that question. So in terms of the expectations, I look very carefully at one person to try to understand that um, in a very deep way. Mm -hmm. And this person is named Rafael Landrove. And he was an activist, a Mexican activist in the Mississippi Delta in the 1920s and early 30s. And what I what I reached the conclusion that I reached about Mr. Landrobe, because my question is, this is a guy who was trying to fight and ultimately succeeded in getting his children admitted to the white school in Bolivar County, Mississippi. And mm -hmm. so I asked myself, well, what did this mean to him? Why did he want to do this? Um, was he a white supremacist? Was he anti-black? Um, was there something else going on? And what I find about him is that the late 19th century in Mexico was a time not unlike uh, recent history in the United States, uh, known as Mexico's Gilded Age. So this mm -hmm. was a time of an authoritarian leader who uh, imposed and achieved uh, incredible economic development, particularly through things like bringing the railroad. Um, and the spoils and benefits of that development were highly uneven. Mm -hmm. And so while some made progress and got rich, and while a, for a small middle class did rise up, um, ever larger numbers of people saw their purchasing power uh, essentially uh, stagnate or decline because the economy was growing, but their ability to make a living was not. Mm -hmm. um, so all sort of uh, 
these gilded age types of dynamics that that we can understand from the times that we've lived through ourselves in the United States. And so Mexican, so that it was that gap between expectation and reality that in some ways fueled the revolution, Mm -hmm. essentially saying there's this increased amount of prosperity um, and yet it's not benefiting us. And there were different groups in the revolution, whether it was uh, urban, the urban people had one reason, the farmers had another reason, uh, the muleteers and, and people who were involved with the railroad had another reason for, for being a part of the revolution. So that same gap between expectation and reality, the expectation of modernity and development contrasting with the reality that to actually get a piece of that is difficult, mm-hmm. um, also fueled migration. And so people wanted to essentially have a piece of of economic progress, wanted to perhaps join the middle class. And so for many, if not most, the way to do that was to go to the United States. Uh, Oh, sorry, one more thing I forgot to mention that's actually even more prominent, which is simply to keep up as a small uh, sharecropper isn't exactly the word, but uh, people had communal land holdings Mm -hmm. that they would work. And in order to simply keep up with the cost of maintaining one's plot, and one's livelihood, one needed increasing amounts of capital for things like tools uh, and simply maintaining one's life as an agricultural producer. Mm-hmm. So whether it was it was uh, maintaining one's life as an agricultural producer, advancing into the middle class, uh, people moved to the, to the United States. And for most, the idea was to save some money and return with that to Mexico. And that okay. is, in fact, what most people did. Mm-hmm. Um, however, many others, uh, you know, there, there were many that were there just as single men, for example. But there were also many that moved as families. Um, and that might eventually uh, lead to settlement in the United States. Now, when they get recruited from Texas to Mississippi, of course, where do they go, right? So it's the 20s. It's the roaring 20s. Uh, Things are stabilizing in Mexico. The economy is doing well in the United States. Mexicans in Texas are being pushed further and further down, more violence, more oppression, precisely because these opportunities are threatening to pull the labor force out of Texas, Mm -hmm. giving people other opportunities. Uh, They can buy a car. With that car, they can go over to the next farmer if they don't like what you're paying. So as things are getting better on the whole, they're getting worse for Mexicans in South Texas. Mm -hmm. That's when a place like Mississippi becomes very attractive. Mm -hmm. So how did or didn't this change over time in terms of both the motivating factors, uh, what immigrants found when they arrived at their destination, what they did in the U.S.? Um, You know, how was, say, you know, uh, 1940 different than 1920? I trace that largely in terms of changes in Mexican history and Mm -hmm. the changing bargain between citizens and the state in Mexico. Um, the, you know, Mexico historically had a very strong state that exerted a lot of uh, influence over the development of things like uh, cultural identity, national identity, education systems, um, just ideologies and culture in general. The, the Mexican state always made a, a very strong attempt to influence those. Um, and at various points, particularly in the mid 20th century, had a lot of success. Mm-hmm. So what I see is as the state becomes more and more um I guess, fulfilling of the promise of the revolution in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, um, the state uh, does appropriate some land from large landholders, does appropriate the uh, the oil industry from foreign uh, businesses, and really does start to make good on some of the promises of the revolution that this is the state of the working people 
and we will uh, we will follow through on that. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, also, I'll add one more thing. As the state further inculcates this nationalist idea, it really introduces the concept or idea of citizenship to a, a broad swath of Mexicans. Not all. So think of some isolated indigenous communities as being perhaps left out of what I'm describing. Um, but a broader and broader swath of Mexicans come to see themselves as citizens with rights of a state called Mexico. Mm-hmm. So bring those people to the United States on something like the Bracero program, a guest worker program uh, where they were recruited from Mexico with contracts that spelled out certain rights, put them in a place like Arkansas, they begin to experience discrimination and they have a very strong reaction to that on a purely, I guess, symbolic level. So forms of discrimination that really Uh, They're very upset about forms of discrimination that impact their economic bottom line, absolutely, Mm -hmm. but they're equally incensed about forms of discrimination that don't, simply because they have come to value the idea of themselves as first-class citizens. So to provide an example, in Arkansas, uh, they are excluded from white restaurants and stores. All these no Mexican signs go up on the restaurants as soon as the Mexicans arrive. And the Mexicans fight this with the help of the consulate. The consulate uh, in that nationalist spirit uh, makes good on its promise to protect workers more so than most consulates in the US at that time. And they use their leverage to say, if this area continues to discriminate against Mexicans, they will not be receiving Mexicans next year. So good luck getting your cotton picked Mm -hmm. without this group that you've come to become reliant upon. And they win, the signs come down, After the signs go back up, they come back down. Eventually, by all accounts, they do win. Mexicans are allowed into the white part of the movie theater, into the white restaurants, into the white stores. And then they proceed to spend all their free time with African-Americans. They proceed not to actually go to the white locations that they had fought so hard to go to. Mm -hmm. And so what I take from that is that this was a fight for Right. This was a fight for an idea of oneself as a first class citizen who is not going to be treated in the denigrated way that African-Americans were treated in Arkansas, but not because there were any implications, not because they really were dying to eat at this restaurant or the other restaurant um, or purchase this or that. Um, It was it was because of their idea of themselves as first class citizens that had become extremely important. Um, whereas in the earlier 20th century, I see it as being more practical. Mm-hmm. Someone like Landrove trying to get his kids into the white school so that he can accomplish the goal of their advancement into the middle class. Um, but actually, many, as long as the Mexican schools were functioning okay, most Mexicans were not challenging them in Mississippi. It was only once the Mexican schools closed and the kids had to go to black schools or no school um, that that uh, someone like Mr. Landrove uh, started to see his kids' path to progress uh, curtailed and uh, was not willing to tolerate that and fought against it. And then as we move into the late 20th century, you see the neoliberalism of Mexico really reflected also in uh, the expectations and behaviors of migrants in the the sort of uh, stunning lack of organizing in uh, a place like Georgia, where I study, at a time where Cesar Chavez is organizing, uh, there's organizing among farm workers in Florida, which is not that far away. Farm workers in the Ohio and the Midwest are organizing. In Oregon, they're organizing. And in Georgia, they're not. And what I take from that is that the uh, more neoliberal Mexico um, neither uh, 
inspired that type of activity, nor did the Mexican consulates support it anymore, um, in part because they'd been stripped of resources to do anything, whereas previously, like all arms of the Mexican state, they had previously had more. Uh, and so um, in a place like California, Oregon, Florida, there's always some other factor, maybe Mexican-Americans or, in the case of Florida, uh, Haitians who had become politicized in Haiti. There's always some other factor that ends up uh, sort of inspiring Mexican workers in that period to activism and labor action. Mm -hmm. And in Georgia, no such factor appears, um, in part because of the very conservative political climate there. And so as a result, the uh, Mexicans that went there really did not end up organizing or pursuing much in the way of labor activism. You know, in terms of the agricultural labor, um, especially when you're talking about the 40s and 50s, are we seeing uh, Mexican workers stepping into agricultural jobs that are being vacated by African-Americans moving north as part of the Great Migration and, and subsequent movements north? Or is this sort of, you know, sort of its own labor pool being developed for different reasons? Yes, is the answer. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely, they're substituting not only for African-Americans moving north, um, but also for, uh, in the parlance of the time, what they referred to as white hillbillies mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. from Appalachian regions. Mm -hmm. And the balance between labor need and labor displacement um, is somewhat difficult to discern. But the main the main conclusion that I've been able to draw is that over the course of the 50s, there still is an available African-American labor pool, but it has moved to the cities mm -hmm. uh, and comes to the farm on buses driven by sort of little crew leaders uh, to work for the day. So African-Americans mm -hmm. at that point are no longer interested in, for the, for the most part, or I should say decreasingly interested in making their lives in these rural areas um, where there's really no possibility for their advancement. So they move to Memphis or even to small cities um, and they come out to work for the day. Mm -hmm. um, but that gives them a lot of bargaining power. That gives them a lot of bargaining power um, because there might be a crew leader who's going to then negotiate amongst different farmers. It's not someone who's, quote unquote, yours, mm -hmm. uh, captive on your farm working only for you. Mm -hmm. um, it gives them bargaining power because if there's urban casual labor available, um, they can do that instead. Um, there was a, a quote in a congressional hearing when uh, someone said that if uh, if when, when at times when cotton picking paid more, quote, you can't get a maid in Memphis because all of the women who would have been maids would be in Arkansas picking cotton. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So the farm and when the wages are lower than they in, on the farm, then they can, you know, go and work as a maid in Memphis. So. Um, the farmers don't like this. They have, since slavery times, had a somewhat captive labor pool on their farms. And that is what they're seeking to replicate through the Bracero program, to contact workers, contract workers that would be theirs. They always use the possessive form. Um, theirs, captive on their farm, working only for them on the hours and conditions that they would determine. And so in that sense, they don't really displace black sharecroppers, but they definitely displace uh, casual, more casual labor on the part of both African Americans and white uh, hillbillies, as they were called at the time. Mm -hmm. So um, can you talk a, a bit about how your research has given us a different viewpoint on Jim Crow, on the civil rights movement, on Southern conservatism, when we think of these 
through the lens of Mexican-American history versus African-American history or versus regional Southern history um, that that these um, are often talked about in the context of? I think through Mexican-American history, we see actually the incredible flexibility of Jim Crow when it suited the economic interests of white power holders. Mm -hmm. So in both rural Mississippi and uh, rural Arkansas in the first half of the 20th century, and also, frankly, in in New Orleans as well, um, in New Orleans, the emphasis is always on... uh, trade with Mexico. So uh, New Orleans trying to situate itself as the gateway to the Americas, competing Mm -hmm. with, I believe it was Tampa and Galveston for that title. And uh, the constant sense that we don't want to offend Latin Americans because that might hamper our economic future as the gateway to Latin America. So there we have a case where the economic interest uh, in brief moments where discrimination against Mexicans starts to appear, um, it is quickly essentially stamped out by uh, power holders saying we need to keep up good relationships with Latin Americans in order to facilitate this business relationship. Mm -hmm. If you look then at the rural areas, essentially we see that these white power holders are willing to fold on the issue of discrimination. They're willing to admit Mexicans to different degrees of the privileges of whiteness, never fully, um, but in Mississippi, almost fully. And in Arkansas, they end up willing to admit Mexicans to many of the privileges of whiteness in that area. But what they keep fighting back on is the economic part. So Mm -hmm. when the Mexican consulate is saying, but you didn't pay them on the rainy day, like the contract says, but you didn't take them to the doctor when they were sick, like the contract says, all of those types of things, you know, you you undercut their wages. The contract says you can't do that. The farmers fight back hard on those things, whereas on the discrimination side, they're willing to fold. And you have examples where, for example, the Chamber of Commerce uh, goes around to the discriminating businesses and asks them to sign an affidavit saying they will stop discriminating. Cases where a an, an ordinance is passed saying anyone who is caught discriminating a Mexican against a Mexican will be fined $50 because such were the stakes uh, from this threat of if you discriminate against Mexicans, the consulate is going to act to withhold your labor in the future. So you see the, really the flexibility of Jim Crow when it suited the economic interests of white power holders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we think about the transition, if you will, from overt eugenics-based racial oppression to repression that has taken a more economic form, I think we see how actually Mexicans fit into this because what you see over the course of the Bracero period, so the late 40s until the mid-60s, which is a period of incredible change, obviously, Mm -hmm. in civil rights, Mm -hmm. and specifically in Arkansas, where... um, where I focus my research and where the largest number of Mexican workers were at that time, um, it starts out with this strong sense of both racial exclusion and uh, economic exploitation. By the end of the 60s, or by the, excuse me, by the 60s, by the end of the period, it's much more about economic exploitation. In other words, okay, we're not going to focus as much on racial purity or keeping you separate from us as long as we can get what we want from you in the labor context. And I think that actually sets up uh, really the rest of the 20th century in a way, looking at what ends up happening with Mexican workers in the South, uh, let's say from the 70s until about 15 years ago, 
where a lot of the communities in the South were actually much more receptive. They were the places where undocumented immigrants could get driver's licenses. Um, they were places where Mexicans reported experiencing a lot less discrimination and anti-immigrant sentiment than they had in California or Texas. Um, and yet, um, they are also going into the lowest rung of jobs and their presence is enabling those jobs to uh, essentially stay lower wage than they might have otherwise had to be. So I think, I think it helps us sort of see the new strategy for extracting low wage labor uh, without overt racial discrimination and violence as had been the main technique for extracting low wage labor in the century prior to the civil rights movement. Given this, that, say, 15 years ago, an undocumented immigrant from Mexico would be able to get a driver's license, say, how then do you explain or, you know, how can we, you know, get some perspective on the intense anti-immigrant politics in the South that we've been seeing more recently? For example, legislation such as Alabama's HB 56, even in the recent presidential election, the intense anti-immigrant sentiments being expressed that really became part of the, the national dialogue during the election. So I argue that this is actually an export from California, mm-hmm. that if you look at the, um, you know, we usually think of, of, I guess, racism, if you will, as having been an export from the South to the rest of the country, although obviously good historical work challenges that. And I see anti the the sort of late 20th, early 20th, first century version of anti-immigrant sentiment as being an export from California. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is specifically that uh, when you think about Proposition 187 in the 1990s, a very anti-immigrant ballot measure that passed with more than 60 percent of the vote in California was later declared unconstitutional and prompted the immigrants' rights organizing and naturalizations that have set California on its current progressive democratic course. Mm-hmm. And if you could, um, sorry, if you could just back up and explain what sure. some of the components of that were. Oh, sure. So Proposition 187 was a ballot initiative that essentially said there will be absolutely no state resources spent on undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. But what that meant was uh, both emergency rooms and public schools being mm-hmm. closed to undocumented immigrants. And both of those matters had already been settled by the Supreme Court as being unconstitutional. So uh, it was seen as a sort of largely symbolic uh, protest mm-hmm. on the part of white Californians to the, the demographic changes that were happening. It never went into effect. But the anti-immigrant movement that it was associated with it really spurred a very strong reaction on the part of Latino communities. Many people who had the opportunity to naturalize did it uh, because of this and really uh, changed the calculus of California forever that the Republican Party is, is still being punished for that at this point 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And so the discourse around that movement in California in the 90s was not they're taking our jobs. It was a suburban discourse about the right to, uh, it was really a taxpayer discourse. Mm -hmm. It was we, the suburban homeowning taxpayers, are paying taxes that are funding these other people who are not deserving receiving education and health care. And in fact, the entire structure of the uh, initiative was about taxpayer dollars as opposed to uh, trying to, I don't know, save construction jobs for Americans or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. it was about taxpayer dollars. And so this suburban taxpayer discourse eventually finds its way to the South precisely in a moment of economic prosperity. So many associate economic downturn equals anti-immigrant, and mm-hmm. that is often the case. But if you look at when this movement started, it was 2005, 2006, when we first started to see 
anti-immigrant ordinances in the South and a rash of anti-immigrant ordinances throughout the country as well at that point. And that was when the economy was doing great. So I read this as a reaction to the increasing prosperity of Latino immigrants. They're buying homes in what had previously been white excerpts. They are uh, buying cars and using those cars to drive around and access public space and go to Walmart and go to the zoo and sort of be in the faces of people who didn't necessarily want to see them there. And in the end, you have this moment of economic prosperity and yet continued um, well-founded insecurity among the middle class, including the white middle class, as to uh, essentially how one is going to make it, how one's children are going to do as well as or better than oneself did, right? And and anyone who's not extremely wealthy in America has has felt that in the past couple decades. And, um, and people came to, white people in these suburban areas came to see Latino immigrants as uh, threatening to their uh, ability to advance in in society to their ability to maintain or improve their foothold in the middle class but as a result of particularly their their uh, presence in schools the idea that they're taking up resources in schools they're taking up the teacher's time in schools they're dragging my kid down um, as well as use of public spaces they're in the park they're everywhere i go um, they weren't supposed to be here. I moved to this suburban exurban area specifically to have a certain type of more homogenous community with lower taxes, but where a larger share of those taxes would go to me and my family. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I really locate that as the origin of the anti-immigrant movement uh, in the South in the middle 2000s, 2005 and six. And if you look at, at HB 56, if you look at um, anti-immigrant legislation, I believe it was HB 11 or SB 11 in Georgia, the legislators that are pushing these things are from the excerpts. They're not from the rural areas. They're not, I, I'm, I won't say 100%, but the vast majority of the legislators, legislators that are pushing these things are from the excerpts. If you look at local ordinances, county level things that say things like um, only one nuclear family can live in one dwelling, uh, things that are specifically targeted at Latino immigrants, and that the discourse around them is all about Latino immigrants, those types of uh, county level legislation or city level legislation. It's all in the areas around Atlanta, the areas around Charlotte. Al Alabama comes from a, a suburban legislator of suburban Birmingham. So that's sort of what I see as the origins of this anti-immigrant movement in the South, uh, really a export from suburban California to the suburban South. So before we wrap up, are you working on any new projects that we might be interested in in the future? Yes. Through my research on uh, Mexican migration in the 20th century, and specifically the Bracero program, mm -hmm. I became interested uh, when I was teaching a course on global migration and trying to understand the Bracero program in the global context of uh, post-war labor recruitment. And so I'm working on a project that is going to look at Braceros as well as uh, Spanish guest workers that were recruited, not just guest workers, but Spanish workers, among them guest workers, that were recruited to France in the post-war period, mm -hmm. um, as well as uh, workers in Southern Africa, most likely Malawian workers that were recruited to South Africa during that time period. Okay, that sounds really interesting. And uh, we'll look forward to to seeing something from that. So um, Julie Wise, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Julie Wise. 
Associate Professor of History at the University of Oregon. She is the author of Corazon de Dixie, Mexicanos in the U.S. South Since 1910, published by the University of North Carolina Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Thank you.